Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. It's summer. Well, not officially, but close enough. Many schools have already taken the next few months off, and others will soon join the summer break exodus. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. Summer for many is the peak travel time. Growing up in New Jersey, our family often went down to Long Beach Island for a week or two to enjoy the ocean. But there also were trips to Shenandoah, Acadia, and Great Smoky Mountains National Parks. They were my first introduction to the national park system and the concept of national parks. Parks are a great vacation destination, whether in summer or just about any other month of the year. To help you come up with some ideas of which parks to visit and why, we've invited two members of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks, Maria Burks and Phil Francis, who collectively have spent more than eight decades working in the national park system. We'll be back in a minute with Maria and Phil to pick their brains for national park destinations we all should consider. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with the breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. All right, welcome to The Traveler, Marie and Phil. How are you guys doing? Great, thanks Thanks for asking. It's a beautiful Yeah, thank you. Here. Yeah, Maria, you are in uh, Cape Cod at Wellfleet. And Phil, where are you today? I'm in Sevierville, Tennessee, just outside of the Gray Smokies. So you guys don't have to travel far to visit a national park. In fact, you guys probably drive through one almost every day. Um, here in, in Utah, I've got to drive a, a, a fair distance, not not too bad, depending on how you um, consider travel across the West, where you can spend all day traveling through one or two counties versus back East, where you can travel through several states in one day. But, um, you know, on my immediate uh, horizon, uh, my wife and I are going to be going up to Grand Teton National Park um, for some sea kayaking, just a little three-day break for some R&R. But I'd really be curious, I mean, with your experience in the park system, you guys have been to more than a few national parks, and I'm sure you've got some some favorite places and some places that people may not be aware of. Yeah, I was thinking of favorite places just a while ago, and 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 uh, Grand Teton is on my list. That hike around Jenny Lake is pretty darn special. And uh, but there's so many great places. I was thinking about the Virgin Islands earlier this morning, <laughs> and going to St. John. Yeah, you no, know, and uh, you know most of that island's a national park and. You could hop off the roads and hop in the water and underwater trails. I mean, gosh, what a beautiful place and find a quiet place and the views are spectacular. But there's many places. You once mentioned what is your favorite one. I'm not sure I can pick a favorite one. 
Yeah. There's many favorite ones. It's kind of like trying to pick your favorite child, you know? So the one you're with at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you're up on uh, Grandfather Mountain along the Blue Ridge Parkway and you can see 100 miles and hardly anybody sitting around you and a nice breeze, it's always cool up there. Just, uh, But it's the most visited national park unit, too. So right places. Yeah, yeah. Maria, what do you have to say? Well, you know, Kurt, you're right that it's it's easy for us to visit our parks. You know, there's Phil living right outside of his, and I live literally a stone's throw from Cape Cod National Seashore. It's right on the other side of the power line outside my subdivision. So I walk over and spend time at the kettle ponds and walk through the woods, and I feel I'm incredibly lucky to live in and around such an amazing place. But I, I'm going to tell you, talk about places, um, special places to visit. I'm going to say for Cape Cod National Seashore, it's less a special place, although I have several of them I can talk about, uh, as it is a special season. One, mm-hmm. people come to Cape Cod in the summer. They love the beaches, you know, the lifeguards and the noise of the surf and clam shacks and so forth. But one of the best times to come to Cape Cod National Seashore is in the fall. Mm-hmm. September and October are absolutely stunning times to come. And I know we're talking about visiting for the summer, but, you know, when you asked me to think of some of my favorite places, I realized that one of them is Cape Cod, but it's in the fall. The water is still warm. Yeah. The colors are beautiful. The crowds are less. A little bit. It's just a little bit less. Yeah. Well, you know, significantly less. And local business really pushes that fall season hard because they need the income. (laughs) But it it is, uh, you know, come to the Cape in August and you cannot make a left turn on some of these roads. Come in September and you can practically do it with your eyes closed. So. Okay. Um, (laughs) I beg to to differ, but you've you've probably lived there longer than I've visited there. Um, But I know Route 6 um, is is, uh, the old King's Highway. Beautiful road, lots of traffic, but it, it takes you to some wonderful places, that's for sure. I think you're absolutely right, though. I mean, it, it, any season is fantastic at Cape Cod. Um, you know, you go in the late fall or the winter, and you've got the, the solitude um, with the ocean there or the bay, and it's just a totally different experience. Um, if you, you hike out to the, the dunes with the dune shacks, I mean, that's a fabulous place. I, I had been going to Cape Cod, oh, probably 15 or 20 years before I discovered that area. And it was just phenomenal. I mean, talk about history, not national park history, but, um, you know, history on the Cape. You're talking about the, the parabolic dunes in, in Provincetown, in the province lands and the dune shacks that are sequestered away out there, tucked in the little hills and valleys of the dunes, right? Yeah, and I can never remember the the proper name. I always want to say Painted Bars something or other. Pickett Hill Bars, Historic District. So I got two words right. Yes, you did. (laughs) (laughs) And you're you're right. That is is a a beautiful area. And like some of the other areas in the National Seashore here, it's less used because it's harder to get to. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of folks here, a lot of folks who visit the Cape who will – be, will drive happily anywhere they can get by car. But when it comes to slogging through loose sand, you know, get them down to the edge of the beach and let them put up their umbrella and they're happy. But but some of, the, some of the hiking we have out here can be a little more strenuous than that. And those are some of the places that if you're willing to put in the effort, you can find some solitude, some quiet, and some opportunity to contemplate. 
No, absolutely. And I think that's a, a general rule you can apply to um, just about any national park is that, you know, most people don't want to go too far from the parking lot. And, uh, you know, as they say, if you hike half mile away from the, the parking lot, you'll be um, removed from the crowds. And certainly, you know, Phil, you're talking about Great Smoky Mountains and the, the number of visitors that descend on that park every year. Hiking is very popular at, at Great Smokies, perhaps more so than many other parks. Can you still escape the crowds by hiking there? You bet. You bet. And, and the same is true in parks like Yosemite. But Smokies has 900 miles of trails. And so there are plenty of places that you can hike. Uh, we have in the Smokies little trails, little, they call them quiet walkways. So you're driving through the park. You have to buy a pass now in order to park in the Smokies. But if you have one of those passes, there's plenty of places you can park and take a little walk down by a mountain stream. We're absolutely gorgeous and many, many streams. And there's like hundreds of miles of streams, too, if not well, thousands of miles. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the, the most popular ones that, that draws the most traffic is abram falls yeah for sure there are so many people that uh, visit there that it became a real problem a real nightmare or a problem for parks and so that's one of the things that created this need for a parking pass is to somehow control the crowds so that people could enjoy the experience uh, but let, let me mention one in yosemite if you go to the south fork of the merced river down in Wawona. Yeah. You know, and there's this, it's a wonderful river. And I remember living there in Bovana many moons ago. And I walked down to the river, it's just exploring. And there was this red ribbon above the river. And you could see it for as far as you could see. There was this ribbon of flying insects. And I finally got close enough. And it was, uh, Little red, the little red beetles, you know, just flying along, amazing. And uh, and there were these little birds, these dippers, they were diving into the river and they would disappear and not come back up for a while. And you see them further downstream. And I was the only person there. Uh, gosh, it was uh, fantastic. Uh, so there are a lot of places like that, Kurt. Yeah, you know, that people can go and. You can actually, there's a trail beside the river you can walk for miles. It's gorgeous. Well, can we go back to Great Smokies just for a minute? Um, because because it's in a, one of the more populated areas of America. If people don't want to put up with the crowds at Abram Falls or Laurel Falls, is there another, and, and I hate to say this, you know, they always criticize travel writers for writing about undiscovered places that then become discovered. Um, can you throw out a couple suggestions if people want to get that type of waterfall experience but don't want to do it with 500 of their best friends? Yeah, I think uh, with 450 of their best friends, you can go to Big Creek. There aren't many undiscovered places, to be honest with you, in the Smokies. There's uh, Abram Falls, Busy's can be Big Creek. Great, great, great place to hike and see waterfalls, good trails, but it's really hard now. There's so many people that come to the Smokies Fest. Maria was saying, and I think this is a good point, depends on the time of year. You know, if you come in uh, outside of spring break, 
and before the summer season is a pretty good time to visit. Mm-hmm. You come in September after kids go back into college. Uh, many senior citizens come to the park in late September and before the leaf season, before the color season begins. Mm-hmm. So there's some great opportunities for people to come enjoy the Smokies. Uh, go up to Clemens Dome. Clemens Dome has 2 million visitors a year. Uh, Cates Cove, 2 million visitors a year. That's crazy. Uh, yeah, so it's with those kinds of numbers, it's, you're going to see other people. I drove through Sevierville today on the way to the store and back, and it is slammed. Wow. Well, and and, and one of the benefits of going off peak season, I mean, if you go after the fall leaf season, the hardwood trees have lost their leaves, and it kind of opens up the landscape, doesn't it? You can see things that you wouldn't normally see. Yeah, in the wintertime, I love driving through the Smokies because you can see the topography so well. And the views, you can see, you know, 80, 90 miles. is fantastic. And uh, and there's many warm days, too, with, you know, even in November and sometimes December. And this past year, we hardly saw any snow at all. Yeah, we saw lots, lots. But but doesn't it, I mean, at, at Great Smokies and I'm guessing Shenandoah and a lot, a lot of the other Appalachian parks, you might see old homesteads that you wouldn't normally see. Is that is that right? Fence lines and whatnot? And the Smokies has the largest collection of log homes, historic log homes in the country. And so there are trails that you can, if you go to Cage Cove, you can see a few. And of course, it's very busy there, but there are others tucked away. And you would need to get information from the Smokies. And and uh, they're pretty neat. We have a historic preservation crew that's kept those up over the years, tried their best to keep it up. And they're very interesting. And the stories behind them, you know, the people who once lived within the boundaries of the Smokies that was also logged by Champion Lumber over the years, and then later the land was bought and the park has been reclaimed. But uh, there's quite a, quite a history and great stories and even underground railroad stories uh, with regard to the Smokies. And there are uh, something like 150 grave sites uh, within the boundaries of the Smokies. And so there's all kinds of things happening in the history of the Native Americans and African Americans and European Americans. And uh, it's not just a place to recreate, it's a place to learn about our history. I want to I want to echo that theme, Kurt. I think a lot of these parks that were set aside um, in the public's mind anyway, primarily for their recreational values, often have human history that is overlooked or not the full significance of which is not really understood by people. It's a missed opportunity in many cases. A lot of folks come to to this park, Cape Cod National Seashore to visit the beaches and, you know, have a good time swimming and all of that, which is wonderful stuff. But the human history here goes back thousands of years, pre-European arrival. And, you know, there are remnants of that and waves of changes in uh, human uses of the area that cover thousands of years. And there's a lot of that is visible and can still be visited. Everything from early archaeological site at Fort Hill to where Native American uh, landscapes are still maintained the way they were thousands of years ago, early European arrivals, the Atwood Higgins house, which was built in the 1730s and is tucked over on Boundbrook Island. Then you've got the whaling industry and a lot of these 
cute little downtown areas, well, downtown Wellfleet, for, for example, which is outside the park, but is part of the broader story of human habitation on Cape Cod. All of that dates to the period in the 18th, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries when the fishing industry was so powerful. All these beautiful Victorian homes that you see, the Captain Penniman House, which is in the park at Fort Hill. Did they You've finish the- lighthouses. Um... You've got uh, tourism, uh, the history of tourism in the area, Highland House Museum. You've got- um, the modern houses <laughs> in the mid 20th century. I mean, it's amazing, mm-hmm. uh, an amazing spread of human history. And folks who come to this park often miss that. Did they finish the, the renovation of the Captain Penniman House? I know they were working on it. Penniman House is in terrific condition now. It looks great. A lot of these places are, um, you can walk around outside and look at them pretty much any time of year. Places like the Penniman House are open only by tour, of course, because, you know, the park isn't, as we were discussing earlier, doesn't have sufficient staff to keep it open all the time. But, um, yep, and it looks great. Yeah, that was one of my fa- favorite places to visit. And, of course, it's got all the the trails that lead through the forest down to the, the, the wetlands and estuaries there. And I think, too, that there's some national heritage areas that are relatively new that also have some important uh, stories for people to learn about. The uh, Gullah Geechee National Cultural Area is one of the most has one of the most fascinating stories I've ever heard, mm-hmm. and and learned nothing about it. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was a kid living in the area, you know, and and uh, they've got a Gullah Geechee Trail, and it's it's worth some time. Uh, for people to go learn more about the history of of that area and what happened to the people who came there and were forced to live there and uh, and where they went and what their culture was and how they spread to Florida and Brownsville, Texas. It's just a, there's so much history in the Park Service and not just about the big natural sure. uh, Heritage areas. Yeah. Correct, correct me if I'm wrong, Phil. The, the Gullah Geechee was uh, an area settled by um, previously enslaved peoples, right? Uh, yeah, or for the, enslaved for the first time. Yeah. Uh, you know, the rules back then were incredible. And if you go back and look at the history of the Constitution, you can understand even better how all this worked. Mm-hmm. I mean, women were considered property and people who were enslaved were considered property. You know, our country has come a long way. It's still got a, a ways to go, but but uh, the stories that you can learn about there, uh, even rice farming, my gosh, uh, the African-American people were growing rice in Africa, and when they came to South Carolina, it wasn't exactly the same climate, and somehow these very talented people learned how to grow things there and help support uh, this new country, and it made a great contribution to the the wealth of the of this part of the world. Uh, so yes, it's worth spending some time on. Yeah, we're talking today with uh, two veterans of the National Park Service, uh, Maria Burks and Phil Francis, who spent many decades working in the park system as superintendents and whatnot. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Do you work or volunteer for the National Park Service? 
Are you retired from the Department of the Interior? Learn how you could earn $250 by joining Interior Federal Credit Union and opening up a new credit card. Visit their website for membership details and how to join. Federally insured by NCUA. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. All right, we're back with Phil and Maria talking about uh, places you might want to explore in the National Park System. We were just talking about uh, the Gullah Geechee uh, areas in uh, southern southeastern United States along, uh, I think, a coastal South Carolina and Georgia. Maria, you wanted to build on that? I did. Uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about beautiful, big, natural areas that people have to get to by car, unless they happen to be like Phil and me, lucky enough to live nearby. But there are also tons and tons of sites that are in and around urban areas and building what, what Phil was just talking about. I, I want to mention the African Burial Ground National Monument, which is in Lower Manhattan, for people not familiar with uh, that part of New York City, it's down by City Hall, a couple blocks north of City Hall, not too far from the Brooklyn Bridge. So if you're going to the Brooklyn Bridge to take a picture, <laughs> you should stop in. That is, you know, speaking of Phil talking about African-American history and the history of enslaved peoples in this country, the burial ground is an absolutely stunning sight. It's staggering to think that a burying ground that contains the remains of the estimate is somewhere around 2,000 free and enslaved Africans who helped to build what was at the time New Amsterdam, way before the American Revolution, helped to build what we call now New York City, and then ultimately, of course, this nation, were buried there. They were not allowed to be buried inside the town limits, which uh, if you look at a map now, it's staggering to think how tiny uh, uh, New Amsterdam was at the time, but just the tip of Manhattan. So they were forced to, to be buried in uh, kind of wild, undeveloped country outside the town limits that over the subsequent decades, and that, that stopped about um, like in the 1790s or so. So for over 100 years, free and enslaved Africans were buried there. So when after that stopped and the city began to build up over subsequent decades, the whole area got kind of leveled out and covered over and buildings were placed over it. And it wasn't until some 200 years later in the 1990s when the foundation for a tall building, the Ted Weiss Federal Building, was being excavated. And of course, the foundation had to go fairly deep to support a taller building. And some 20 or 30 feet down, they began discovering human remains. It really was, an, 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 and when the local African-American community and historians realized that this was the Negro burying ground from the 17th and 18th centuries, um, 
it construction was halted and you know everyone had to step step back and take a breath the results of the research on the disinterred remains tell an incredible story infants children uh, whole families, um, the ages of people, the kinds of work they had to do. It was amazing the amount of information that Howard University was able to glean from studying um, the disinterred remains, which were subsequently reinterred through a very, very moving ceremony um, at the burial ground. And there's now a visitor center there, uh, an exterior memorial where you can sit and contemplate. And uh, I have to say the exhibits and the stories told inside that visitor center are just remarkable. The artistry, the talent, and the, uh, the, gosh, just the power of the story of those human beings who helped to build this country and whose story was untold for so long. Nobody thinks of the North as being, you know, slave-holding slave areas, but that is, um, you know, it's a misunderstanding. There were plenty of folks who owned slaves in Northern states. And the fact that this uh, this huge population went undisturbed for so long and unrecognized and unacknowledged, um, and that story is told. This came to mind, Kurt, because Juneteenth is coming up, June 19th, which is the anniversary of the day that slaves in Texas were told about the Emancipation Proclamation, were told they were officially free. It's celebrated now as a federal holiday, and um, they'll, I'm sure they'll do, be doing some special programs there. But this is a site that people can visit who, you know, all of northern New Jersey and and uh, and the area around greater metropolitan New York has access to this site, probably through public transportation. And I highly recommend it. No, absolutely. Um, and you, you talk about um, visiting places where you don't have to drive for days on, on end. And you want to talk about uh, the greater New York New Jersey metropolitan area, Morristown National Historical Park in central Jersey, um, what with uh, the 250th anniversary of the Revolutionary War coming, is a fabulous park. I mean, you're not going to spend multiple days there, but you could you could fill up a, a day touring um, Morristown and um, General Washington's headquarters and going out to Jockey Hollow and seeing uh, where the troops spent that, that rough winter um, and, you know, replicas of some of the huts that they built. But, you know, you just look around the country, and there's numerous overlooked gems, as I like to say. You know, if you live in, in southeastern Nebraska, you've got Homestead National Historical Park, which tells the story of the Homestead Act and, and all the people who benefited from it. Um, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, we just had a story on the Traveler about Fort Necessity and some of the research there. They just did an archaeological survey of uh, where the French and Indian War started, and they found some bullets, um, 60 caliber bullets that, uh, who knows, maybe George Washington fired them. There's some some um, history that says he was the one who started that, that little skirmish with the French. Columbia, South Carolina, the gateway to Congaree National Park, um, another gorgeous place that people aren't that familiar with. Las Vegas, you've got Thule Fossil Beds National Monument. Boston, Salem Maritime National Historic Site, or New Bedford Whaling. Um, New Bedford Whaling, yeah, absolutely. They're, they're all incredible places. And, you know, as the superintendent of Scotts Bluff National Monument in western Nebraska once told me, we're not a final destination, but we can be a destination on your way to that final destination. <laughs> I just think there's so many wonderful little overlooked places that people can go and, and you know, in, enjoy nature or enjoy history, learn about cultures the park system is so robust with all these different um, experiences you can enjoy. I think, you know, yeah, if people 
people go to the National Park Service's website, you can sort and search by a variety of different terms and interests. And you can search by state and, you know, find locations that are near you. It is, it is, I think, the case that most people associate national parks. They think Yosemite, they think Yellowstone, they might think Smokies, they might think the Grand Canyon, they might even think of a national seashore. But but the majority of units in the national park system are actually historic or, or cultural units. And I think people are really surprised to find that out. And many of those units are located in or near urban areas um, where they're easier to access. Well, you talk about Washington, D.C. Go down to the National Mall and, and look at all the memorials, um, the Jefferson Memorial, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, the Korean War Memorial, and, and on and on. And then there's you know some hidden sites um, that, yeah, you really you have to do your, your homework in advance before you go to these towns to, to un- fully understand what awaits you. So, you know, we, we've, we've focused a lot on the eastern half of the country. Um, some people say, you know, what about the Midwest? I mean, there's got to be some gorgeous places in the Midwest. And um, Sleeping Bear Dunes um, National Lakeshore, I, I spent a, a week there once working on some stories. And talk about overlooked gems. Um, I was able to, to get a kayak and I floated down, I think it's the Platte River, which is kind of funny because, you know, the... Most people connect the Platte River with uh, Nebraska and the Sandhill Crane uh, migration. But um, it was so enjoyable. I had the river to myself, except for a kingfisher who would, uh, you know, he followed me down the river and and was about 10 or 15 yards in front of me. And when I'd catch up, he'd flit down another 10 or 15 yards and I'd just follow him. It's such a peaceful day. And then, you know, it opens up onto the, the, the lake there and the history there, I mean, the indigenous history and the tale of how those two islands out in the lake came to be, it's just a wonderful place. Yeah. Well, then there's the Buffalo River, you know. And uh, have you ever been to the Buffalo River, flooded into river? I, I've never had the chance. It's pretty darn nice, to say the least. Arkansas Post is right nearby and Hot Springs National Park is uh, there in Hot Springs National Park. Uh, yeah, there's many places in the Midwest for sure. Head down in Texas. Do you count Texas as uh, as part of the Midwest? I go to, of course, Big Eastern Bend. Half of it. We're real crowded. The eastern half of it. Big Bend's getting crowded. Yeah, I think, I think Big Thicket is an undiscovered gem. Oh, that's a great place. Uh, one of the most biodiverse places in the world is that Big Thicket. It's where cactus and uh, palm trees come together, right? And the carnivorous plants. Yeah. <laughs> and you're still here. Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't go there. I had a writer write about it. <laughs> Scott, you've also got Indiana. You talk about um, dunes, Indiana dunes, which used to be a national lakeshore. It's now a national park. What do you guys think about that? What do you think about renaming units in the national park system? I mean, we had... Um, um, I asked our readers the other day about, you know, how could we expand the national park system? And some of the people pointed to existing units in the national park system. Oh, Dinosaur National Monument would be a great national park. And and it's like, well, it's already part of the park system. I was trying to think outside of it. What do you think about, you know, all these different names, um, national park, national battlefield, national historic site? Should they just all be renamed national parks and get it over with? Well, that's what our former director suggested, that all the units should be called national parks, and that would help resolve 
some issues. Well, you know, it used to be, Kurt, back in the day, um, you know, in the back in the um, Cenozoic era when when Phil and I first joined the Park Service. Last century. You, yeah, right. It, it was the last century. It used to it was. Be, it was. It used to be the case that there were different management policies for units that were labeled national parks versus units that weren't. And for someone who uh, has, you know, I worked at Golden Gate National Recreation Area, and I'll never forget when we first joined the system, it was called GGNRA, and people laughed and, you know, thought how silly. And yet, if you go to that yeah. park now, it is really a magnificent collection of of cultural and natural resources that is spread over a uh, quite a spread of landscape, giving access to millions of people around the Bay Area. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, I don't see it as being any less valuable or significant than a place like the Grand Canyon. It's just different. And yeah. so uh, and they're all managed now with the same management policies, depending on it depends on the category of or the type of resource you have in the park, the condition that it's in, whether it's a natural resource, whether it's an endangered species, whether it's an historic structure, whether it's, you know, a landscape or whatever, uh, they're all managed using the same policies, regardless of the title of the park. And I I guess in from the insider's view, the name is almost, it is irrelevant, really, it doesn't matter from a management perspective. It may matter from a, a public perception perspective or a funding perspective or something, but it, it, uh, in terms of the, at the end of the day, in terms of the resource, it makes no difference at all. As far as I can tell, Phil, you may feel differently. I don't know. No, I agree with that. I, I remember those little booklets. There was a different little management booklet for each type of, uh, parks or collection of parks. And, but the policies do apply to all the parks pretty much the same. And I, and I think that, uh, communities may benefit some, I think, if you rename a national historic site to a national park. But uh, I, I'm not sure. I, I have really mixed feelings about it, and I guess I'm being a little wishy-washy about it, but it, it does deserve some thought. Uh, but at the same time, you want to let the public know exactly what type of park and what kind of resources are being protected in the particular site. So I'm not sure. I was just thinking about Chaco Canyon, you know, well, Places like Chaco, what a what a great place and a great story. Have you ever been to Chaco? This, Bert, have you been? To no, I've never I've never had the opportunity. But um, talk about Chaco, a, a little news blip. Um, Interior Secretary Hallen just uh, withdrew uh, public lands within ten miles of Chaco Culture National Historical Park from uh, oil and gas leaning and, and new mining claims for a twenty year period. So uh, we're seeing some preservation there. Um, enhanced preservation, but you know, it, it I, I thought it was all settled back in 1978 with passage of the Redwoods Act, which yeah. Congress said that you know, no matter what the name is, we're going to manage them the same. They're going to have the same protections unless you know the the founding legis enabling legislation said something different. That was an important law too, because it has a sentence in that law that says superintendents will do nothing in derogation of park values. I can't tell you how many times as advocates to protect national parks, we refer back to the Redwood Act. I'm glad you brought that up. And it still holds true today. Um, and, and I guess if, if one would argue against renaming everything national park, you have to consider the traffic that it would bring to these places. Because people want to, people want to, you know, count coup, if you will, on national parks. I've been all, 
you know, when I started the Traveler back in 2005, I think there was, you know, 380 or 390 units in the national park system. Now we're up to 423 or 24, and um, we have 63, quote-unquote, national parks. Um, just think the crowds you would have if you just waved a wand and we have 424 national parks. And there are some places that are certainly worthy of national park designation, but I, I cringe what might happen to the resource. And and I talk about um, Dinosaur National Monument in northeastern Utah and in southwestern Colorado. What an amazing place. I mean, it's got two world-class rivers for floating. It's got incredible paleontological resources, incredible archaeological resources, incredible geologic resources. I'll make an analogy. When I was in college, I was a, a whitewater river guide uh, my last three years. Um, I, I was a guide on the new river before it became uh, a national river, a unit of the national park system. Um, there was a river outside of Morgantown, West Virginia, where I went to school, the Cheat River. And when I started my guiding my sophomore year, our group of five or six boats would be on that river by ourselves, solitude for the whole 20 miles or 25 miles. By the time I was a senior, you would come up towards a rapid and you'd have to pull over to shore to wait for the group in front of you to run through that rapid. And meanwhile, there'd be a group behind you having to pull over to shore to wait for you to run that rapid. And so I wonder if Dinosaur National Monument all of a sudden was decreed a national park, you know, how would that affect the, the river traffic? How would that affect the crowds coming to see the incredible fossil hillside there with all the resources? Um, I don't know. I worry about some of those things. Yeah. It, it occurs to me that we should be very careful as to not encourage more people to come. I mean, everybody sh should have a good experience in a national park. And it's pretty hard to do that. As the number of people in this country has grown up to, what, 320 million people now? 330. Uh, yeah. So I just think that uh, maybe maybe they shouldn't be called national park units for that very reason. To once, on one hand, identify the kind of park it is, and two, to not create a unnecessary problem. I think people who who derive economic benefit from the national parks, of course, would like to see more people come and to spend more money and to help support their their local economy. But sometimes you get more than you you anticipated. Some problems also come along with the extra number of people. So uh, I guess if I had to vote one way or the other, I'd keep it like it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, my feeling is if they were all named National Park with just a maybe a subtitle saying what kind of park it was, then you know you spread the wealth. <laughs> maybe maybe that maybe yeah. that's a way to look that's at it. True. You know, I I hate to think, and Phil, I totally and, and Kurt, both of you, I totally understand your point. I certainly don't disagree from having had to manage massive levels of 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 high visitation in some of these parks. But I, I hate to think that we have to hide our treasures away because we're we're underfunded and can't manage them properly. To me, that's just the wrong way to go about it. But, you know, maybe it's the practical answer and for the moment. We're talking today with uh, two veterans of the National Park Service, uh, Maria Burks and Phil Francis, who spent many decades working in the park system as superintendents and whatnot. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. 
It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference too at friendsofacadia.org. Well, let me ask you this, and we'll, we'll stick um, with, with the news of late. Um, just um, late Thursday night, we saw the, the Senate pass um, the debt ceiling uh, legislation to, to lift the debt ceiling or suspend the debt ceiling for, for two years. But it also carries some um, constraints on federal funding. I know uh, President Biden had uh, proposed a fiscal 24 budget for the Park Service. That was about an 8% increase over uh, Fiscal 23 funding. Um, fiscal 25, we're going to see budgets held to about 1% growth, if that. And you mix all this in with, you know, how do we manage crowds in the national park system is one answer, creating more parks. You guys are managers of the national parks with limited resources. Can we expand the national park system under these budgetary situations? Uh, you know, we can't, we can't manage what we have now. I, I look at that budget... Well, of course, the alternative, which I don't think would ever have actually happened, would have meant that all non-defense spending and non-Medicaid and Medicare and um, Social Security funding would have been cut in half. And that would have, obviously, that would have destroyed the National Park Service um, and the system, not necessarily the parks in the short run. But uh, so that was a, you know, that was a cliff that, thank God, we didn't go over. But, you know, I call it death by a thousand cuts. It's a phrase that's been overused but still it applies, I think. Bit by bit, you know, the budget isn't adequate to keep up with in, increased expenses and increased visitation, and we chip away at services, and we reduce hours of operation. We cut back on the number of programs offered. We cut back on maintenance schedules. We close facilities we can't afford to operate, so maybe there's no restroom where there used to be a restroom. I was just out the other day hiking around uh, in um Bound Brook Island here in the park, and I went over to the Atwood Higgins House Complex dating back to the 1700s, 1730, I think the house was built. And, um, you know, it's a meadow out there. The park hasn't been able to get out there and, and mow. It's prime tick habitat for a beautiful little uh, complex of historic structures. Um, but, I'm, you know, I'm confident they just don't have the, there's just no money. Uh, things Things get cut and cut. And so this next year is going to be even harder because yeah. there, there, yeah, not only is there no increase, there's going to, you know, effectively in a reduction. And, um, you know, for, for the last 20, 25 years or so, Phil, I would say, you know, bit by bit, the budget has been eroding and we've been losing positions. I, I keep saying we, it's the art and the artifact of my having worked for the service for almost four <laughs> decades. I still, I still use we, 
But, um, you know, the the erosion of the service's ability to care for the resources it's been entrusted with is the service works. People work so hard to keep that from being obvious. But at a point, you just can't ignore it anymore. And I hate to think it's just going to get worse. Yeah, I think the morale of them of our employees continues to be very low and uh, certainly one of the lowest agencies in terms of morale of any agency in all of government. And I think, too, that, uh, you know, of all the non-defense discretionary agencies, the cost of all of those together, Forest Service, Park Service, National Institute for Health, Education, et cetera, et cetera, is only about 12% of the total federal budget. And so if if you gave a modest increase to the non-defense discretionary agencies, including the national parks, you know, it probably could be found in other places. A trillion dollars fund the National Park Service forever. You know, an extra half a billion dollars would make a huge difference in the ability of the service to meet its mandate. Uh, so uh, hopefully, the, the, you know, you look at what's happening in the Smokies, other parks, what they're doing and try, trying to manage crowds. They really need more staff. They need the equipment. They need the training. And those things aren't being provided. It makes it more difficult to recruit and retain uh, employees. Uh, so it's too bad, really. It's just too bad that we yep. couldn't find enough money in this country as wealthy and successful as, as it is. Uh, to adequately fund the stories and history and resources, the protection of resources in our parks. Especially since since adding any units to the system without providing funding for the new units has been a habit going back decades on, yeah. on the Hill. Not that one wouldn't want these units to have been recognized, but one would hope that the freight to, you know, to to manage them properly would have come along with them. You know, so in answer to your question, Kurt, it's hard it's hard to realize that as life, you know, as life moves on and time passes and more significant human history happens that we want to recognize, it's going to be and and more natural resources are found to be threatened that we want to protect, that it's going to be harder and harder to expand the system the way it might need to be expanded or should be expanded if we want to meet our mandate without the commensurate funding. Uh, you know, people on the Hill you know, we've worked, Phil and I have both worked with folks on the Hill extensively and staff and so forth. People people know this, but the political pressures from all directions are so difficult that um, somehow we, we always seem to come out still squeezed. Yeah, you know, um, talking about employees, morale and whatnot, and, you know, you've got housing is a big issue and, and salary is a big issue. And you know, I've heard in the past that, um, you know, the Park Service, I, I think you, you hit on, Phil, is, you know, one of the lower paying agencies in Interior, which I don't understand. Somebody posted on a, a comment on The Traveler just the other day, and I, I got the sense that it was a, a Park Service employee. And I don't know if this is true or not, but they were saying that the Forest Service and the BLM were actually offering hiring bonuses. Have you guys heard about that? I have not. No, yeah. I, I'm not surprised, though. Yeah. I didn't know there was the authority to even do that. Yeah, like I said, I, I don't know. 
how accurate it is. But you know, getting back to the funding system, um, and we're going to have to wrap this up, but what about an excise tax on outdoor gear to help support the national parks? I mean, you've got the duck stamps for, for waterfowl, you've got hunting licenses, you've got fishing licenses, all you know generate revenues for the Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, what about excise tax on, on backpacks, on tents, on sleeping bags, on hiking boots, on kayaks, on fishing, uh, well, it's already taxed on fishing poles. Is that a, a reasonable um, source of revenue? Could it possibly generate a, enough to make a difference? Uh, taxes uh, aren't very popular, you know, and so I think getting it through the Congress may be difficult. Uh, it certainly would pro help provide the funding, but you look at the number, the economic activity associated with all the national parks. I mean, you're talking about billions and billions of dollars. You're talking about I. At one time, the Park Service was reporting $39 billion. I think it's now up to $80 billion in economic benefit. And if the Park Service could just get a small slice of that benefit, you know, it would be in much better shape. Yeah. yeah, you know, that that goes back when I when I heard that the IRS, I mean, this isn't, you know, speaking of taxes, when I heard that the IRS had been granted some $80 billion that now I guess has been cut down to $60 billion in order to help it manage tax collection better. I actually, you know, I actually support that. I pay my taxes. I'm happy to pay for Medicare. You know, I believe in 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 chipping in here to the extent that the law uh, requires and expects. And if this is going to help improve tax revenues, then maybe some of that can come back into the non, you know, into the discretionary non-defense spending pot. So my fingers are crossed that that's going to make a difference. I'm a little troubled by the idea of targeting recreational equipment um, specifically, partly because, you know, there are so many units of the national park system that don't use tents and uh, and fishing poles. And, you know, there are lots of places where those things don't don't apply. We I think the Park Service also has a substantial number of corporate partners who deal with uh, in that uh, you know that line of merchandise who makes very substantial contributions pro bono uh, volunteer work cash contributions to park partners and so forth that could increase that would certainly be welcome i'm a little nervous about a separate tax but uh, i'm not quite sure why but it makes me nervous i don't know phil what do you think well, I just think it would be really hard to get through the Congress, and and so I think if you if you did that for the National Park Service, maybe you would have to do that for other agencies, uh, and, and maybe that's okay. Maybe that's okay. Maybe maybe that should be considered. Um, not a bad idea at all. Well, we'll see. I don't know. It just be hard to get through. You know, we're talking about. Taxes and, and revenues and, and how much gateway communities generate. I mean, in 2021, outdoor recreation contributed $454 billion to the nation's gross domestic product. And it's only gone up since then. Would it, would it really be a, um, that bad to, to take 10% of that and give it to the Park Service to ensure that we have the staff out there in parks. When we go into a parks, we can actually find an interpreter to help us understand what we're looking at to to help pay for maintaining these places. I mean, that's another thing that I'm, I'm waiting to see what happens with the, the, the debt limit 
legislation is while it may not affect the flow of um, Great American Outdoor Act funds to the parks to catch up with backlog maintenance, if the parks have to cut staff that manages those dollars, what's that going to do to um, the backlog? Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's, the, that's a good point. You know, one-time funding is sometimes easier to get than ongoing operational funds, which, you know, which aren't very, uh, you know, they don't have a lot of cachet associated with them, cleaning restrooms and opening visitor centers and, re, you know, repairing um, modest repairs of this and that and buying a new vehicle aren't very exciting. But that's really what keeps the parks running, and it's the hardest thing to get funded. You mentioned 10%. I, I think probably 1%. <laughs> Well, I'd like to use difference. Yeah. Yeah. One, one percent would be, oh, my God, I don't even know we have to hire extra people to spend it. I like to be generous. But (laughs) (laughs) seriously, though, and I think we still have to figure out a lot of the impacts of the debt ceiling legislation. I mean, what about the billion dollars that Yellowstone needs to rebuild after last year's floods? What about the Denali Park Road? Um repairs the bridge that they've already pushed off, I think, to 2025 or 2026 because of some um, unexpected uh, geological conditions they ran across. I mean, you've got those situations across the park system, and, and they're going to be ongoing with hurricanes where and wildfires where these things pop up that we didn't have budget set aside for that. Well, I, I would agree that there should be a mechanism to to request those one-time funds is needed, but uh, one of the one of the reasons the Park Service is in trouble now is because it's been so difficult to, to get base increases, yeah, yeah, uh, to maintain the the structures and to prepare for such events like that. So it's easier, it's certainly easier for the Congress to give money for one year, uh, and I'm not sure why. Uh, what is the mechanism? What makes it so difficult to to get ongoing uh, increases to appropriations? I, I don't know the answer to that, but I wish it would happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, we used to propose budgets. We we talk about how in our budgets we'd be doing ongoing maintenance. If you if you just keep up with your maintenance maintenance, you can avoid a certain percentage of these massive um, problems. I mean, obviously the floods in Yellowstone were completely, I mean, that there's, there's no way to plan for that. But for a lot of these things, it, um, roofs that have to be replaced and buildings that have to be, you know, replumbed or whatever, because of failure to maintain over time, it seems so short-sighted. We never seem to get that. That message never seems to land somehow. Yeah, yeah. Well, Phil, Maria, it's been great talking today about uh, the parks and where to enjoy the parks. Let's let's come full circle and, and wrap this up. Um, if you were unconstrained and could go to any unit of the park system this summer or this fall to visit, where would you go? Oh my just God. one. That's just an impossible. One. An impossible. Yeah, I've got to name just one. That's impossible. All right, two. <laughs> well, okay. that doesn't help. <laughs> You know, I I think I would go to Mount Rainier. I've never been there. Really? Yeah, never been to Mount Rainier or Olympic. So I think I would try the Pacific Northwest. Oh, they're both beautiful. You got to get yeah. out there, Phil. Yeah, Mount Rainier is gorgeous. I I think I'd go to to Glacier. I've never been, and shortly it may not be Glacier. 
National Park. <laughs> I mean, Sorry. maybe not shortly, but you know, um, there are resources that are disappearing in front of our eyes due to global warming and climate change. Um, so I think that probably would be at the top of my list. You know, I think uh, I think Glacier is going to be a very dynamic park in in the years to come, and I say that because we are going to see changes in the in the climate, and we are going to see changes in the reason Glacier is called Glacier, but it's going to have downstream effects, so to speak. You know, um, I love Alaska. I've been to, to Glacier Bay National Park and Preserve. That's the only place in Alaska I've been. I think I'd like to go um, to Gates of the Arctic and, and go on a, a river trip for a week or so. And then more more locally, so to speak, um, as I mentioned earlier in the show, you know, the 250th anniversary of the American Revolution is coming. And there are so many incredible units that protect that history, that interpret that history. I'd like to spend a couple weeks driving up the East Coast, you know, from maybe South Carolina up to, to northern New York, you know, from, from 96 down in South Carolina up to Saratoga National Historical Park in upstate New York, and just soak in all that rich American history. Oh, absolutely. It's great. You know, the, there's a part in, of history that's occurring or, or not occurring, but a part of history uh, people are trying to preserve right now, and that's the Rosenwald schools. Mm-hmm. If you haven't learned anything about the Julius Rosenwald schools, uh, you should. It's uh, it's in there were five thousand schools, and uh, funded by Julius Rosenwald, who was uh, president of Sears. Hmm. Booker T. Washington was involved. It's a great story. So in the Southeast, you can go visit some of the Rosenwald schools that'll bring tears to your eyes. Well, Phil, Maria, thanks so much for joining me today. It's been great uh, exploring these places and, and talking about some of current events. Um, we'll catch up down the road and, and see how things fare in the park system. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Kurt. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. And we hope that gave you some ideas for places in the National Park System to visit. Next week, Lynn Riddick will sit down with Joshua Morano, an underwater archaeologist for the National Park Service, to learn about some surprising discoveries of a hospital and cemetery found 10 feet underwater at Dry Tortugas National Park. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rappencheck. See you in the parks. Composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.